Well, good morning. So thankful to be here uh, with you this morning. Thanks for setting your alarm an hour early and getting here on time. That's awesome. About 11.15, we'll see an influx of people come rolling in, and we'll just greet them with a smile. And as we continue the, in a short series uh, through the, the, the week of Passover, uh, the week to the cross, where we experience what happened to Jesus, uh, as we get ready to celebrate in a couple of weeks, we've got... Uh, Palm Sunday next Sunday and Easter the following Sunday. Easter in March is kind of feeling weird. Uh, Good Friday's on the 25th. Um, JP and I were just talking. We just think that as we, we focused on this journey to the cross, to death, and to resurrection, will be appropriate for, of course, this time of the year. So we'll be in uh, Mark 14 this morning, as JP read. And as we read these stories, and we've been around and we've maybe read this story before, we've, been, we've heard the Easter story. Uh, we're not really as surprised as some may be when they read it for the first time, uh, mostly because we have the whole scripture that we can kind of put everything together. We can look at the Old Testament and, and where Jesus is being spoken about and then he shows up and it's fulfilled and, and then we're, we see the, the death and the burial and the resurrection. But in this time, when the disciples are in the midst and at the table, they don't know all this and they're still doubting and they're still confused as uh, we spoke about last week. And one of the fulfillments that is a huge part of this story that we'll unpack today is in Isaiah 53. Uh, you don't need to turn there. You can if you'd like. Uh, but I'm just going to read just a piece of that to you and then pray and then we'll, we'll get into it. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 3, says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried out our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one. To his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the inequity of us all. Perfect. Lord, we recognize this as truth. Lord, we see it. We see how you fulfilled this by sending your son to be the one that was crushed. God, how you made that decision. And how Jesus surrendered and obeyed that decision for us. So God, as we read these words, that they would be fresh, they would be anew this morning to us. That you bring new life to them again to help us understand this new covenant. This new exodus that you have given us of death so that we can rejoice, so that we can worship, so we can be loved by you. Thank you for your great love. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So this is the summary. You read Isaiah 53, and this is the summary of this week that we're talking about, going into, uh, into Easter, into the, the death, burial, and resurrection. We see that Jesus came. We see that we, humanity, rejected him. His Father poured out his wrath onto him so that we may be found healed through his death, burial, and resurrection. 
And so there are certain monumental pieces that have to happen during this week. And as we spoke of, uh, JP talked about last week, the Last Supper, and the guys are sitting around and they don't really understand what's happening. And now we're going to jump into the next phase of this, is the Garden of Gethsemane and this prayer. And this is one of the biggest and greatest and most powerful and most magnificent prayers that is in all of Scripture. And so we're going to talk about that, but first we have to kind of go back and and get a good understanding of what Jesus is going to pray that will change the life for everyone that might believe for all of creation. So I want to go back and we'll talk about Passover for a moment. Uh, Something that's still practiced in in, uh, Judaism. Uh, Some Messianic Jews practice uh, seders. And so we're going to talk about the Passover meal, and I'm not going to unpack the whole thing. I just want to kind of give you some identifiers of what the Passover would look like. Uh, first, they would all show up and they'd recline, and when at every table across the, the world, when there's a, a Passover meal being partaken in, there's someone that's kind of the narrator, the presider over it. And so they will tell the stories, and they're the ones that will be doing the blessings. And so they'll bless the first cup, okay, the first cup of wine. And this cup it represents Thanksgiving. It's a cup that says, hey, we are so thankful that you, God, has rescued us from, from Egypt. Then it was typical that the mill would come out after the first blessing. And the mill was important because each element in the mill had, had symbolism. There was unleavened bread, there was wine, there was bitter herbs, stewed fruits and nuts, and roasted lamb. The unleavened bread represented that, that, that Israel didn't have time to, to I guess, it, would you put yeast, yeast in bread to help it rise? So they didn't have time for that. They didn't have time to make the bread rise. So they baked it unleavened and they took it with them. The wine symbolizes the blood that was poured out and painted on the door frames. The bitter herbs would be to remind them of the bitterness of being under the persecution of Egypt. The stewed fruits and nuts was a red, was reddish in color and it symbolized what they did while they were in slavery. And that was they made red bricks all day in the heat of the Heat pounded down on their backs without any relentless or just totally relentless. And the last thing is the roasted lamb. A lamb must die for the blood to be poured out on the doorway. So the meal would come out, and then uh, if there was a young child or maybe the youngest person in the room would ask the presider questions. Why this meal? Why in this way? And the presider would go on and they'd tell the story of Exodus, of what happened in and they'd say, hey, we're in bondage under Egypt. And we sent all these plagues, or God sent all these plagues. And he finally rescued us by sending himself as a death angel to come and take the firstborn. And if you didn't have blood painted on the doorframe of your home, then a child would die. And Pharaoh's son died. And that was the, kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. And Pharaoh finally said, go, get out of my country. But not without him sending his troops to go and and try to kill them on their path out. Sometimes in a Seder um, or a Passover meal, there would be a, a cup of salt water to represent the splitting of the seas. And they'd usually dip this in, um, dip the bitter herbs and spices in the salt water. So after the, uh, the story would be told, then they'd sing some songs. They'd sing songs of thanksgiving uh, to God. Great is our Lord. And then they would consume the second cup. The second cup was to remind them how God rescued them from the bondage of that slavery. Then they would eat the unleavened bread, the bitter herbs and spices, and the stewed fruit. 
and the lamb. They would consume the meal. Then the head of the household would, would bless the third cup, which represents redemption. That they have been and they will be redeemed. Going back to the promise that God gave Abraham. Then they'd sing typically three or four more songs. And then finally, they, they, would, they would drink uh, the fourth and final cup, reminding them of this. That, pro- that God promised that they would be his people and he would be their God. And then the celebration would be over. And they'd wait till next year and they'd do it all over again. Even today in Judaism, when they practice this, they are literally waiting and hoping for the Messiah to come between now and the following time that they would do this, this Passover meal again. So these cups and this, this, this meal and all this stuff that has great symbolism, and we find it in Exodus 6, uh, Exodus 6, 6, which actually unpacks each one of those blessings. So each time there's a blessing of the cup, the cup represented a promise that God had given them. And I know that Dennis is going to talk about this later at the Lord's Supper, but I just want to cover it real quick. Don't want to steal your thunder. You can keep do it again at the end. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. That's the first cup. And I will deliver you from slavery, the second cup. And I will redeem you with, an out, with outstretched arms, with, uh, with great acts of judgment, the third cup. And I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, the fourth cup. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out and under the burdens of the Egyptians. And then in verse 8 it says, And I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to you, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. For I am the Lord. And so he summarizes that by going back to something that happened in Genesis 15. All right, so like I said earlier, we've got the whole scripture to see how this, this building moment we'll, we'll talk about in Mark 14. But in Genesis 15, the Abrahamic covenant, where it was very common if a man or men were to have a serious covenant, then there would have to be blood that was spilled. That would be the contract. And a lot, often there was a sacrifice, and often they would cut animals in two, and they'd place them on both sides. And as part of the contractual agreement, they'd walk through the, the animals. Sometimes when they walked through the animals, they'd actually pour the blood of those animals on their heads or on their feet as they walked through, saying that this, if I break my end of the bargain, then it's my blood that will be spilled, and I will be divided in two. And so we see in Genesis 15 where... This is happening. There's prescribed animals that are being placed out and they're being cut in two and divided. And Abraham's thinking, I'm going to walk through this with God because I'm going to make this covenant with God that we will be faithful only to, only to the Lord. And God makes this promise that he will provide the land and make, uh, make a blessing of, of all nations through the Israelites. The only problem with this is that if Abraham were to fail his side of the covenant and that Abraham would cease to worship God, then the wrath of God would be poured out on us. Abraham not just was making that for himself and his family, but he was making it for his son Isaac and Jacob and for us today. And so what does God do? He puts him into a deep sleep and sets him to the side, and God goes through. And if God walks through these divided pieces... And God is the one that says, I will uphold this covenant. And if I cease to uphold this covenant, then I cease to be God. And that's not going to happen. So God makes the covenant and fulfills the the covenant all the way to the end 
which is where we will find ourselves today. So we're looking at Jesus' table, and he's at the Passover, he's with the guys, and we don't know exactly what was at that table. There's probably bitter herbs, there's probably uh, the, the stewed fruit, we know there's bread, we know there's wine. But a couple things that were different. There wasn't lamb meat, and the fourth cup never got consumed. The reason there was no lamb meat because the lamb of God was sitting at the table. So there was no need for lamb to be consumed during this meal. And the fourth cup is what we'll talk about today. And what he's doing is he's unpacking this new Passover, this new, uh, this new exodus for us. In Zechariah 13, um, it says that, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. But Jesus, when he's quoting this in verse 27, he says, And Jesus said to them, You will fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Jesus says, I will do this. I will lay down my life. Making, a, making that connection back to Isaiah 53 where it says God is the one that did this, that struck his son. And Jesus is sitting there saying, I will do this. So this is establishing a new and final exodus for all of us. So let's just kind of recap real quick. In Israel, they were under bondage. The blood of the lamb was poured out. There was meat that was consumed. The blood came and became the shelter for them. Those who had faith, they painted it on the doorway and they were rescued. Today, we are in bondage. We're in bondage of sin. The blood of the Lamb has been poured out. And Jesus says that His body will be consumed as remembrance, which is in the bread. And for all that have faith, His blood becomes the shelter, which is covering us from the Father's wrath. It covers us, it redeems us, and will one day fully reconcile us back to the Father. But this doesn't happen without sorrow and without great anguish. So Mark 14, 32, if you have your, your, your Bibles open there, uh, we're going to unpack this, uh, this text. And we'll start in 32, kind of covered the earlier pieces now. We're going to go through 42. And it says, And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. So the eleven are now, Judas is not in the mix, the eleven are there in uh, with um, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so we know that this garden is, is probably pretty big, and this prayer that's about to happen holds in the balance of God's glory and the salvation of all mankind. And so we know that this, this, uh, this garden's probably fairly large. We'll read more about it as they go deeper and deeper into, into the garden. And he prays this prayer, and his prayer was heard. Okay? We know this because of Hebrews 5 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, to him who was able to save him from death. He was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And so he goes a little bit further in verse 33, and he takes Peter, James, and John and begins to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. So now he's got the eleven in the garden. He's taken the three and he's gone deeper into the garden. Yet he's beginning to be very troubled, which means to be overcome with horror. He's experiencing something that no one in the garden is seen or understands what's happening. There's some sort of depth to what Jesus is feeling and experiencing that is causing him great Trouble, great anguish. In Luke 22, it says he 
he began to sweat drops of blood, which is a actual medical condition called hematidrosis. And it's usually found in people that are awaiting execution. It's caused by great stress, anxiety, worry, and you literally begin to sweat blood. This isn't like, man, I've kind of got the butterflies about what's about to happen here. Listen to the, just the, the violence and the power of these words that Jesus is saying, I am troubled, I am anguished, I'm sweating blood. If we were a friend of someone that was telling us these things, we would be on high alert, right? We'd be very aware of everything that they're doing. We'd probably want to keep an eye out for them because we don't know what's happening and we'll probably have some fear that, man, this dude ain't okay. All right? We'll talk about how his friends respond a little bit later. But this is a super intense situation. And the question is, what is shaking Jesus in the garden? What's happening to him. So he goes on in verse 35, and going a little farther, he fell on the ground and, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Remove this cup. Going back to Passover, the fourth cup, the final cup, was the promise that we would be his people and he would be our God. We would be fully and completely reconciled back to the Father. Well, that takes a little bit more than what was happening. And so the Messiah had to come. Jesus had to come to fulfill that. And that's why Jesus says, I'm not going to drink the fourth cup at Passover. And that's why he's sitting here and he's praying this prayer. If this cup can pass, yet not what I will, but what you will. This, this prayer... And this description of this prayer is about as close as you can find as the, prescript, as the uh, prescription in, in uh, Hebrews 5, where it, says, There's no, um, where it says, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. It corresponds well with what we're reading. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly in Luke 22, and he begins to sweat. Uh, sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. Loud cries and tears, agony. Hebrews 5, Luke 22, Mark 14, we're seeing this parallel. So when we read Hebrews, we're reading that this is probably the prayer that he's talking about in Hebrews 5. It goes on in Luke 22, it says, uh, Remove this cup, nevertheless, not my will, but yours will be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him and being in an, an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So we hear that in Hebrews 5, that because of his reverence, his, his, his prayers were heard. Were they answered? And so in Luke 22, we see that they were. And sometimes it's not always the way that we think that it, things are supposed to, to happen. So he sends an angel to strengthen him through this affirmation of the angel saying, hey, this must, this must happen. The angel bears the good message that there's no other way. But God would help Jesus through giving him strength. Jesus could not turn away from this mission. God helped him. 
we also see this beautiful picture of the Father and the Son. Through the words that he, when he prays, he says, Abba, Father. Now in the Jewish tradition, it would be grossly wrong for someone to call God Father. Way out of bounds to call him Abba. Which is being only a family term. Only a term that a son, when looking at his daddy, would say, Father. Father. Abba, Father. And so we see this beautiful picture of Jesus crying out to his daddy. And some people don't like that terminology and they're uncomfortable with, with God and daddy, but Jesus it can say it. He looks at his dad. He looks at his father. And with such intimacy, he says, Abba, Daddy, Father. This doesn't need to happen. But your will, your will be done. It's funny, that word is only found two other times in the New Testament. It's found in Romans 8.15 and Galatians 4.6. And in both references, it's when someone has received the power of the Holy Spirit. And in response to receiving that power, then they cry out, Abba, Father. Almost like there's, a, there's this new connection of being the adopted son or daughter to Jesus Christ. And to where there's a new depth of understanding of the, of the thing that has to happen for Jesus to go to the cross, into the grave, and be resurrected. It's a new understanding, maybe, of depth of like, man, I didn't know it, 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 the cost, but I get it now. Abba, Father, thank you. It's a proclamation of thanksgiving, screaming out. It says crying out in those two passages. A recognition, recognizing that the wrath of God should have been poured out on us. But instead it was poured out on Jesus. So what was Jesus experiencing in the garden? Every time that you see a cup mentioned in the Old Testament, all right, it's always talking about God's wrath. So you look at Jeremiah, Isaiah, Zechariah, Psalms, they're all through there. And you'll find different times where the cup's mentioned and the cup always refers to the wrath of God. I don't think Jesus was experiencing fear of physical death. Right? We'd go on and we'd see some saints and the apostles and we've heard of martyrs that die singing songs of joy, hymns of praise to God as they take their last breath. That doesn't sound like what Jesus is fearful of here. It seems much more, much deeper than that. Jesus begins to taste what he's going to experience on the cross. Not the physical torture. Not the physical torture, but the fullness of the punishment of a cup. And so I want to read uh, Jonathan Edwards to you. He wrote this great sermon called Christ's Agony. If you ever want to read a great sermon about this text, it, I almost read it today. He's like, I'm just going to read this to you guys because it's awesome. But I'm going to read some bits and pieces of it. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus had then a near view of that furnace of wrath into which he was to be cast. He was brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames and see the glowing of its heat that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. There are two things that render Christ's love wonderful. One, that he should be willing to endure suffering that was so great. And two, that he should be willing to endure them 
to make atonement for wickedness that was so great. But in order to its being properly said, Christ on his own act and choice endured suffering that were so great. It was necessary that he should have an extraordinary sense how great these sufferings were to be before he endured them. This was given in his agony. So Jesus prays a prayer. God sends an angel and gives him strength. But all uh, in, uh, in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke, he says he continues to pray. So he's been strengthened, but yet he continues to pray. So what is he praying after he gets his answer? Nope, you're, you're going to have to suffer. This is the, the call. So what is he continuing to pray? Well, in Matthew it says that the words don't change, or the words change. The first time he says, my father, if it's possible, please let this cup pass from me. And the second time he says, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. In Luke, it says that he prayed more earnestly. He got his answer from the angel, so what else is he praying for? Well, he continues to pray, and he's praying with great fervor towards something. And the second part of the prayer is that the Lord's will will be done. In Mark, it says that, he, that uh, again, he went away and praying, saying the same words. This isn't a contradiction. He got his answer. He knew what he needed to do. And so he spent the remainder of his time praying God, your will be done. Father, your will be done. This cup cannot pass. Father, your will be done. So in verse 37 we see, And he came and found his friends sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. So Jesus left the disciples when he went into the garden, deeper in the garden with the three, with this, hey, agony talk, suffering talk. And as we all kind of talked about just a second ago, man, if we had someone that was speaking to us that way, we would be on high alert. We'd be wanting to keep an eye on them. It says that Jesus only went a stone's throw away from them. Yet, they find themselves sleeping. Exhausted? Probably. But if you had one of your closest friends tell you that they're suffering, and they come back even the second after the first time, and they're sweating blood, would you not be a little concerned? It's not that they weren't careful and caring of Jesus. It's that they were not spiritually awake yet. There is a call here to us that we must be spiritually awake in prayer. A call that when, no matter if it's the biggest crisis like something like this, or something as small as how am I going to get my taxes taken care of, that we would be in a heart and in a posture of praying to the Lord with great fervor in our hearts, in great need, with a desire that, hey God, I have these, these requests, but I always want to end, God, your will. Your will be done. And are we able, do we have the, the boldness to pray that prayer, even to death, even in the face of, of great agony? So we have to be a people that are awake. And Jesus is preparing His disciples. And he's also preparing the church 
to be able to surrender and come to the Lord in great prayer and great need of Him. And he goes on in verse 40, he says, And again He came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer Him. And He came to them a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. There's a level of like not understanding that the disciples are wrestling with here. As JP spoke about last week, they weren't quite getting it yet. And I think about that, and I think about so many people that, I, that we probably all know that don't get it. And yet we don't have a ton of grace. I just feel like God was giving them a lot of patience and a lot of grace right here. Okay, guys. Time, time's up. Let's go. Let's do this thing. Let us start beginning to drink the cup of my Father's wrath. Peter says that, uh, that I'll pour out my blood for you. If, you. if you die, hey, you go, I'm going. And there he is. There he is, sleeping. He asked the disciples, do you think you could drink this cup? You don't understand what you're asking for. Now, there will be great persecution. It's been promised to us as followers of Jesus Christ. But that is just a scratch in comparison to the depth of what Jesus was looking into when he looked into the wrath of his Father. So Jesus begins to, to take the journey. He picks up the cup and begins to walk the path. And in Hebrews 5, 8, 9, we read earlier, it says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all, to all who obey. Church, we have to be people that obey the Lord. And this is the call for us. He says, be careful. Don't be tempted by the ways of the world. Man, the world is going to fight for every ounce of our attention to consume us. And he's saying, pray so that you're not tempted. So when you are, that he will show you a way out through a community, through his word, through a reminder of the need, the great need that the disciples are feeling here as they keep waking up like, what's wrong with me? Why do I keep falling asleep? This great need of Jesus, a better understanding. And they'll get it. And we now, through the sending of the Holy Spirit, we get it. Jonathan Edwards writes, and this is as we close, this was the greatest act of obedience that Christ was to perform. He prays for strength and help and his poor, feeble human nature might be supported, that he might not fail in his great trial, that he might not sink and be swallowed up, and his strength so overcome that he should not hold out and finish the appointed obedience. He said, I mean, he was afraid lest his poor, feeble strength should be overcome, and that he should fail in so great a trial, and that he should be swallowed up, swallowed up by that death that he was to die, and so should not be saved from death. And therefore he offered a strong crying and tears unto him and was able to strengthen him and support and save him from that death. That the death he was to suffer might not overcome his love and obedience, but that he might overcome death and so be saved from death. For Jesus to not desire his Father's will more than his own would have been Christ's death. 
And that's the message. The message is that if we have a greater desire for our will over the Father's will, that's our death. We must desire God's will over our own. And pray that they line up. That there is a calling to us that when we ask, that we would ask for His will to be done, not our own. And it's not for anything but to glorify the Lord. This is the most impacting prayer in God's Word. Yet not what I will, but what you will. This prayer saves us. It offers salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's this beautiful picture of God pouring out what we deserve onto His Son. And so this cup, that is the cup of of God's wrath, this cup of death, when Jesus consumes it, becomes a cup of love. He loved us so much that He would lay down His life so that we may have life in Him and through Him. And we see this throughout the whole of Scripture. God brings this whole thing together in this crescendo moment right here and saying that we will need the Father's will more than our own will. And so as we approach Easter, I ask that you think about these things. Do we desire God's will more than our own so that He may be lifted up on high? Let's pray. Holy and righteous God, we need you. We need you to come and strengthen us to remind us that when we pray, Lord, that we're praying in a way that you are satisfied, not us. We're praying in a way that your will would be done, not our own. And that's a scary prayer. So, Lord, I pray you give us courage, you give us strength to ask for that. Because we don't know really what your will is. But we do know and we do trust that you are sovereign, that you are good, you are gracious, you are glorious, you are great. And that you will be glorified and you will be lifted up. And I pray that's why we would pray this prayer, is for your glory, not our own. So give us strength as a church. Give us strength as a people group that call you Abba, Father. Holy Spirit, guide us, direct us, empower us to worship and to glorify you above all things. We pray this in your name. Amen.